for that. Well, tonight we're going to be in 1 Kings chapter 8. We didn't get very far last week. We're going to try and finish up chapter 8 tonight. And before we go there, let me just say, uh, every once in a while I like to present a book or two that I think are, are good books that would be worth the read. Lately, we've been really strong in our teaching on Sundays about salvation and what salvation is and uh, the call for the body to be actively witnessing for Christ, being real salt and light, and, uh, and fleshing out, living out uh, salvation theology in our own lives. Not that, not that it's, uh, salvation is not an ongoing work. But the theology that saved you, when you understand it, it compels you to want to tell others about Jesus. And so one book that I'm looking at, and it's really not so much for you to read if you want to, it's a small read, it's an easy read. It's written by uh, Michael Lawrence, and it's called Conversion. And I'm just getting a lot of wonderful little nuggets out of this book. Uh, Michael Lawrence just takes you right back to Scripture to understand what it means to be saved. What does it mean to be converted, to be born again? And uh, honestly, a lot of Christians today sitting in churches really don't know what salvation is. Uh, they think they do, but they're a lot like Nicodemus. What do you mean I have to go back into my mother's womb? I'm an old man. Uh, we, we, we don't understand the, the, the theology behind conversion. And so uh, we're going to continue to hit that on, in the book, book of Acts series. Here's another book that's much more just on a practical level. If you love to study the Bible or you've, you've struggled in your study of the Bible in the past, it's, it's been difficult for you to understand how to study the Bible. And so because of that, you've relied on the teachings of others. You've relied on maybe good Bible teachers online or in podcasts or watching a television program. Um, but honestly, God wants us to be in the Word. He doesn't want uh, us to substitute our personal Bible study with somebody else uh, and their teaching. Now, we should sit under good teaching. That's important. But it should never replace your personal Bible study. And so here's a book written by Howard Hendricks, and it's a workbook. It actually fill in the blank. You can go through it. But it's called Living by the Book. This one I would recommend if you haven't already picked it up. Living by the Book, written by Howard Hendricks. There is a book, and then there's a workbook. You don't have to have the book. The book kind of like, you know, just fires you up to want to do the workbook. But the workbook is enough. I mean, you can, you can just buy the workbook and get going. It will teach you how to inductively study the Bible. How you, a layperson who's never gone to seminary, can break down the text and learn how to study God's Word. And uh, we try to do that with you. You know, um, uh, I know that Maureen does that with the women's, her teaching. And, and we just want to make the word available to you and make it so it's practical for you to learn how to study it. So that's a great book, too. Just wanted to share those two with you. But tonight we're in 1 Kings, and let's begin with prayer tonight. Before we pray, boy, do we have good news. My goodness, wow. So uh, you heard Pat talk last week about Cindy Dampier, her daughter. Uh, Cindy and Yale are part of our church family. And uh, Cindy uh, was diagnosed with cancer, um, had, a, had a, uh, a, a, what was it, a, was it a tumor, an actual tumor, and then they, they, they really knew the cancer was in the thyroid area, in the, in the nodules, uh, lymph nodes, and so they went in to try to remove everything they possibly could, get it all, you know, and, and the prayer is that it hadn't spread to other parts of her body. And uh, the, so she went back up for the, she had the surgery, went back up for the follow-up, and the CAT scan from before surgery that told them accurately that she had cancer, when she went back this past Monday with her dad, Jerry, you're here tonight, and the doctors told her 
they can't find any cancer in any of the, of the cells, the parts that they took in the biopsy. There's nothing. Zero cancer. They said to her, you are a miracle. And of course, we know who gets the glory and the praise and the honor for that. And basically, what Cindy has done is she's placed her faith in the promises of God. And God honored that, and God healed her. And that's a joyous thing, isn't it? So as a church, we celebrate with Cindy Dampier and uh, her husband Yale, with Pat and Jerry, her parents that are here. That's just a victory for all of us to, sit, to, to know that God is still uh, moving miraculously and doing things that doctors cannot explain. And they were just completely dumbfounded, bewildered by the results. And so praise be unto God. Now, I say that, and some of you are sitting here and you're going, well, why didn't God do that for my friend or my family member? He doesn't always. And that's the key, is we should claim the promises of God. We're going to see tonight uh, Solomon claiming God's promises. But just because you claim them is not a guarantee that it will happen the way you want it to happen. And uh, every family faces both victory and deep sorrow and challenge. It happens to every family. And it's because the sun rises on the just and the unjust alike. And God sees all of it, understands all of it, and oftentimes is behind some of it. He approves all of it or it wouldn't happen. So we don't understand all that. It makes no sense to us, but He is God and He is good. And in this case, it was a healing and we rejoice. Amen. Amen. So let's give thanks to God tonight. Father... We think of Barbara Thomas, who still is in the hospital in Boston where she's recovering. In fact, I think she might, they might be releasing her soon, um, uh, but she is doing better, and we thank you for the progress that she's seeing after the brain bleed that she experienced over a week ago. We uh, lift up other needs in the body. Some are unspoken, people that are in difficult situations, even, even right now. And we pray that you would just be with them and give them, give them hope, give them strength, give them what they need to trust you through what they're facing. We rejoice with Cindy and her family. And, and it's a victory for our church family to see this. It just strengthens all of our faith, all of us in our faith. And we, we just give you the glory for all of it. And may your name be great because of this healing. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, Solomon started out in chapter 8 by uh, bringing up the, the Ark of the Covenant, and now they've got the dedication service, and, and uh, he moves to the altar of burnt offering. We're going to pick up a little bit of repeat from last week, but not much. Uh, verse 22, we'll start there. And what's happened, just to kind of set it up for you, he has moved to the altar of burnt offering to offer a lengthy prayer of consecration to the Lord. And it's a lengthy prayer. In fact, if you turn real quick with me to 2 Chronicles chapter 5. 2 Chronicles chapter 5. If you want the, the Reader's Digest version of what was happening to the kings in the Old Testament, you read the kings. If you want a more thorough or maybe even better than thorough, you want more revelation. More things are revealed about the south, the south, the south, the south, the south. And that's true here in 2 Chronicles. If you go, <coughs> excuse me, let's look at uh, Sorry. I've got a Bible with really thin pages. And so it's a wonderful Bible. I love my Bible, but that, that's the one downside. So trying to find something quickly is not easy. Um, but if you go to 2 Chronicles, you actually see uh, it starts in chapter 6, and the prayer of dedication starts in verse 12 of chapter 6, right? And it goes all the way through to the end of the chapter. 
And it's, it's basically the same prayer, I mean, because it's the same story. But, but maybe there's a little bit of different insight that is given over the prayer that Solomon prayed. But one of the things that I think we all love is chapter 7 of 2 Chronicles, when God responds to uh, the intercessory prayer of Solomon for the people of Israel. And uh, God actually says, uh, he comes to Solomon after the people have all dispersed and Solomon's alone. And he comes and he says, I, I have uh, received your sacrifice and your prayer and I will dwell in the temple. God's giving him a confirmation that what you did was good, and I will be there. And then, of course, verse 14, uh, well, verse, verse 12, Then the Lord appeared to Solomon in the night, and he said to him, I have heard your prayer. You have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifices, of chapter 7. And when I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain or command the locusts to devour the land or send pestilence among the people, when I send curses, that's what he's saying, God is saying, it yet, yet if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, will forgive their sin and will heal their land. Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to the prayer that is made in this place. For I now I have chosen and consecrated this house that my name be there forever. So what a beautiful ending to this prayer. But we're still in the prayer. So let's go back to, to, to 1 Kings, if you will now. And let's pick up uh, in chapter 8, right around verse 22. It says, Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel. He spread out his hands toward heaven. We talked about that last week, the postures of, of prayer and worship. Uh, but here's somewhat of an outline. I think I gave you the outline quickly last week. I went back through that outline as I studied this week, and I've kind of refined it. So the, whatever I gave you last week, if it, this doesn't line up exactly the wording, it's okay. Um, it's going to be different. But let's write this down, if you will. Let me give you several points. This is a lengthy prayer. This is a prayer of intercession. This is the king praying before God. And he first prays to God directly, and then he prays in behalf of the people. So he addresses God first, okay, which is how we should always pray. We never should start prayer with us. We never should start our prayers with our needs. We should start our prayers worshiping God, recognizing the greatness of God. It's called, if you want to write it down, worship-based prayer. That's what we find throughout Scripture. That's how Jesus prayed. Worship-based prayer. How did He begin the prayer that He taught His disciples? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be Thy name. There's no request in there. There's no supplication. That's, that's adoration. He's a, he is bringing honor and glory to the name of God. That's a great way to begin prayer. And here's what happens. When you start with the greatness of God and who God is, and you, 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 you remind yourself and you give thanks to God for what He's done in your life and what He's done uh, for your family, and all of a sudden now whatever you're going to bring later in the prayer, which is supplication, needs, you believe God can handle it. Why? Because you made God as great as He is. You set your mind to the greatness of God. Now, what problem is too big for God? But if you start with your problem, we have a tendency to make the problem bigger than life. And we can't get past the problem. And we don't see God fixing the problem. We, we, that's why we pray these prayers that are like we're, we're cornering God. Okay, okay God. Now, nope, nope, nope. You can't go there. I need you to focus in and listen to what I'm... We pray that way. It's like we have to somehow get God on our side to see it our way. The reason you're doing that is because you don't have a clear picture of His greatness and His sovereignty. When you recognize Him in prayer first, it's, then you relax when you bring your request before Him. You just lay it down. Father... Here's the request. I know you can handle it. 
And, and, and so that's, that's, that's how he starts here. Now, this prayer, as I said last week, is full of uh, quotations from the Pentateuch. I wish I had a whiteboard. I'd spell it out for you. But the Pentateuch are the first five, it's the first five books of the Old Testament. It's the book of, books of Moses. And so you're talking uh, all these quotes that Solomon's going to make are going to come from the Pentateuch. He's trying to remind Israel what God has done for them. Okay? Uh, so let's go ahead and get started. Here's somewhat of an outline of this prayer. So point one, we'll look at one first. That's a good number to start with, right? One? Okay. Uh, here it is. Number one, no God compares to Israel's God. That's what we're going to see here in the verses, uh, a few verses that follow. No God compares to Israel's God. Write that down. That's number one. Look what it says in verse 23. And said, O Lord God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on earth beneath. Write this passage down if you didn't last week. 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 27. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. So, there's a clear indicator here that Solomon knows that even though he's building a house for God, it doesn't contain God. It's just a place where the presence of God can come near the people through the priest, right? So, uh, so how big is God? Thank you for asking. Um, the Milky Way galaxy, I don't want to have trouble with this uh, little mic here. We'll get, it, we'll get it figured out. The Milky Way galaxy, which we see overhead, is 100,000 light years long and 10,000, uh, I'm sorry, uh, 100,000 light years wide. Okay? We're talking about our galaxy. To, 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 move, to move across our Milky Way, I, I said 10,000 light years, not 100,000. 100,000 long 10,000 wide. If you cruise at the speed of light, which is pretty fast, right? If you cruise at the speed of light, it would take you 100,000 years to travel our galaxy. That's just our galaxy. And scientists in our day, with all of the photography coming back, they have not come to the end of all the galaxies. They know there's, there's, there's just billions of galaxies. That's why the Bible says the heavens declare, they pronounce the glory of God. Man doesn't want to give God credit for the galaxies and for the skies and the heavens, but he's the only explanation that makes sense. You have to be a fool and an idiot to not believe that God is the creator. I'm just telling you. And that's what God said in the scripture. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. So all these people with PhDs and big degrees and universities teaching our young people, if they don't believe that God exists and that God created, they're foolish. Now, you talk about really just insulting them. They're the, they think we're the fools for believing in God. God says, the Creator says, no, they're the fools. And one day He'll prove it. He'll reveal it to them. It'll, it's called the ultimate rejection. How many of you have faced rejection in your life at some point? Some kind of, uh, you know, you, you really liked that girl when you were in, in high school <coughs> and she dumped you like a, like a dead weight. <coughs> and you didn't think you'd recover from that rejection. The pain. The pain. Shame on you, some of you ladies, for doing that to us. <laughs> so, so... When, when this earth comes to an end and Jesus reappears, 
and there's going to be a final judgment. He will, the Bible says that everybody on the earth, every knee will bow. Even those who are in the grave will come out of the grave. And every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, God, is Lord. Then who will look foolish? Who is the fool? And they will hear Jesus say, Depart from me, those of you who practice lawlessness. You talk about ultimate rejection. Whatever rejection any human being has experienced on this earth is nothing like the ultimate rejection coming to those who rejected Jesus Christ as Savior. And I don't share that to one-up somebody or to, I'm not proud like, I, like I've got what you don't. Look, it's only by the grace of God that I'm saved. Only by the grace of God that you're saved. And so we should humbly do our very best to help people understand who God is, sharing the gospel with them. And, and so here in this text, <laughs> God is huge. I mean, uh, Isaiah says, tells us that God holds the heavens in the palm of his hand. This great God who created galaxy after galaxy after galaxy, yet he holds, get this, he holds the heavens, not heaven. There's three heavens. The first heaven is our atmosphere, what our airplanes fly in. The second heaven is the celestial. And then the third heaven is the throne of God. It's the temple of God. And the scripture, Isaiah, the Old Testament prophet, 700 years before Jesus shows up and he said, God holds the heavens in the palm of his hands. No wonder David asks, what is man that thou art mindful of him? In Psalm 8.4. We're so puny compared to God and compared to, the, to all that God... We're, we're puny. And yet we are the highest form of creation. You're even, even higher than the angels. Angels are created beings, but you're higher than the angels. It's amazing. I mean, you think about it. Uh, Jesus is the express image of God the Father. And he made himself God the Father, Jesus the Son, who created all things, made himself known to you and to me out of all the galaxies. Wow, what an awesome God. And that's, what, that's what Solomon is starting with in his prayer. He's trying to get the picture to the people and to God. We know there is none like you, none. Now, secondly, so first of all, no God compares to Israel's God. Secondly, he gives thanks, Solomon gives thanks to God for his past fulfillments of promises. He gives thanks to God for past fulfillments of promises. So, first, he says, God, nobody's like you. Secondly, verse 24, you have kept with your servant David, my father, what you declared to him. You kept your promise, God. You spoke with your mouth and with your hand. You have fulfilled, this, fulfilled it this day. You told my, my, my father that you would allow the temple to be built by his son, and today the temple is built, and you are the reason it's built. You fulfilled your promise. And then he goes, number three, let's look at the next part of the prayer. He humbly asks God for continued presence and protection for Israel. So he, he humbly asks God to continue to protect and provide for Israel. In other words, we recognize first that you, you have been faithful in past promises. We're asking you to be faithful in future promises. But we're not asking by commanding you, you must do this. I command it. I claim it. I and this, this attitude of like I'm in authority over God. No, it's humbly. We're, we're asking you that as we go forward, we're going to mess up, God. We're going to sin. 
Would you now look? It's, it's different from your life today after Christ than before Christ, where, where Solomon's praying with Israel. They, they knew that if they sinned, they had to go back and offer sacrifices for the sins. They knew they, would go, they knew they were going to fall short. And so Solomon's saying, we know we will. Will you continue in the future to, to keep your promises? And will you protect and provide for us as you said you would? So this is a powerful prayer. Look what he says in verse 25. Here it is. Now therefore, O Lord God of Israel, keep for your servant David, my father, what you have promised him, saying, You shall not lack a man to sit before me on the throne of Israel, if only your sons pay close attention to their way to walk before me as you have walked before me. Now therefore, O God of Israel, let your word be confirmed, which you have spoken to your servant David, my father. You said that you would keep uh, his line on the throne. Father, will you do that? Will you do it? You know, uh, this is a great secret to prayer, by the way, for us. There's a secret here in this, okay? To take God's promises that he said in the past and take them to heart and humbly give God, not remind God because God doesn't forget anything, but bring those requests to God. You're, you're, you're actually praying now God's prayers. What prayers does God answer? His prayers. The things he wants to do. He's not looking for you to tell him what to do because he's, he's, he's ignorant of what's going on. He's looking for you to learn how to pray according to his will, the scripture said, right? So you're learning how to pray God's prayer. That's what he's doing here, okay? And uh, it's a wonderful secret to prayer. So, so when, you're, when you're sick, Father... The scripture says that by the stripes of Jesus Christ, I am healed. And that's not just for sin, but God can also touch you and heal you with sickness and disease. He can do it. Jesus did it. Now, whether God does it is his business, but you claim that promise. You share it humbly by faith, with great faith. You bring that promise before God. Does that make sense? And, and now what happens if God doesn't heal the way you asked him? That just reveals that God, who is sovereign, has his own plan that's different than the way you're thinking. It doesn't mean that he breaks a promise. Remember when it said in the scripture, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers the righteous out of them all. That's a promise. Now, it doesn't say how he delivers the righteous. He might deliver one righteous to total healing in the physical body. To another righteous, he delivers them into heaven. But believe me, they're no longer sick either way. Amen? <laughs> so when he says, many are the afflictions, but God delivers him out of them all, he means it. We claim it. We ask for physical healing. We ask for God to move in that problem that we're having to live with and face. We're asking God to give us wisdom and understanding and insight to work through the, 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 the cloud that's hanging over our life at that time. And we fully expect that God will do it. We know He can, right? But now we're claiming the promise, asking Him to do it by faith. That's good. Don't ever apologize. For, for making a request before God. Be careful in nothing, but in everything with prayer and supplica supplication, let your request be made known to God. There it is. He doesn't want you to hold back your need, your, your, your request, your desire. Give it. Now, don't make foolish requests. That's not a blanket statement. You get to write a check for whatever you want. No, it's not like, okay, well now I get to go out and get, I'm going to get me one of those big houses. Lord, I'm, na I'm naming it, claiming it, framing it, and, sh and whatever else I'm gonna, I can do to it so that I can have that big house. And God's probably going, oh, my goodness. I just wish you would get out of the way and line up with what I want to do in your life. Right? So there's a difference between prosperity preaching, and th those guys are out there. 
So they, part of their teaching is absolutely correct. We should remind God of the promises that he's given us in the word. We should walk by faith in those promises. But if somebody tells you, well, then if you did that and you didn't get the healing or you didn't get the whatever it was you were asking for, there must be sin in your life. There must be something wrong because you're supposed to get that. Wrong! That is bad theology. Bad theology. I guess the disciples didn't have much faith and they weren't very good followers of Christ because every one of them died a terrible death. Where's all the promises and success and prosperity for the disciples? They didn't get it. What happened to, you know, William Carey goes to, he feels a calling of God to go to India. And he goes to India and he dedicates his life in India, following the will of the Lord. Seven years, not one convert. What would that make you want to do? I missed the calling. I'm going home. And some of you wouldn't have waited seven years. After one year with no convert, you'd probably say, man, I don't know. Maybe did I, did I think this up? He was in God's will. Today, you travel in India, and you mention the name William Carey, and that name is well-known. He was the greatest missionary to India. But he struggled for seven years before God began to move. Why? I don't know why. God's God. He does whatever he wants. We just need to line up, obey, and stay faithful, keep claiming, keep asking, until God says, nope, I'm not going to give it to you. Then you can, okay, you're releasing me then. But until that, you don't, you don't stop. And so Solomon's just challenging God. He's just trying to put it out here before the Lord and, and, and really helping the people to understand not only are you asking, reminding God and, and thanking Him for what He's done in the past by the promises He's fulfilled, but, but he, there are promises that He's made to us. Let's walk obediently and let's remind Him that He made that promise. And humbly let's remind Him. And let's walk in it. Amen? All right, we've really hammered that. I mean, we killed that horse good. So let's move forward. Verse, number four. Now he lists seven prayers that would require the Lord's response. Seven prayers that he prays. What he's praying here, he's praying uh, for God to give the, a response, a favorable response, when God brings a curse upon the people for their disobedience. So let me just take you through these, okay? So um, these are seven prayers of supplication. He started with worship, now he's moving into supplication, requests. And he prayed the Lord, first of all, would, would judge between the wicked and the righteous. That's verses 31 through 32. And we're going to cover it, but verses 31 through 32. Judge between the wicked and the righteous. Then that he prays that the Lord would forgive the sins that had caused defeat in battle. That's verses 33 and 34. And then... He prays that God would forgive the sins that he had brought on by drought, or be, uh, that he brought a drought on because of the sins of the people. That's 35 and 36. Then the Lord would forgive the sins that had resulted in nation, national calamities. In every one of these instances, the people messed up. They sinned. God was right to judge them. God was right to bring a curse upon them. But he's reminding God that even though you made that promise and then they didn't keep the promise, and you brought a curse because they didn't keep the promise. We're still asking you, Lord, to forgive, show mercy. Will you turn back to them? Will you give them another chance? And then he goes to uh, show mercy to God-fearing foreigners. Lord, will you show mercy to those who aren't even Jews, but who live among the Jews? They're, they're God-fearing. Would you show them mercy? That's verses 41 through 43. And then in verses 44 and 45, give victory in battle. And the last one is bring restoration after captivity. That's verses 46 through 54. Bring restoration after captivity. Now, 
Again, let me just say this, very important we understand, because we're talking about prayer tonight, and we all should be praying. Just because God promises doesn't mean that, he's going, that we're going to possess it. That's where we need to be very careful with this word of faith movement. You speak it, and it's there. You now have it. It's yours. Okay? And the reality is, no, never, even though you speak, never do your words that you spoke take authority over God's sovereignty. Ever. See, you still have to, even when you speak a promise to the Lord, reminding Him of a promise that He made to you or to, through the Word, you, you, you do it humbly, knowing He's still in control. I don't dictate how God moves. And I've been around Christians, and I've been around different kinds of Christians in different circles. Uh, back in the 80s, uh, the charismatic movement, I, I had some dear friends in that, and so I would hang out with them and experience some of those things. And it used to always, I'd walk away going, Who, who's really God? Are they allowing God to be God and do His work? Or have they just taken His promises and now they speak them, and because they spoke them, God doesn't have a choice but to do them, like a genie in the bottle. Well, nowhere in Scripture does that line up. And so I, I just think it's real. We need to be very careful there. But let's go back and let's look at uh, verse 27. But will, will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built? Last part, how much less than the house, the temple that I have built? Back in 1 Kings 8, 12, the Lord has said that He would dwell in the thick darkness. I have indeed built you an exalted house, a place for you to dwell in forever. So uh, Solomon is really very much understanding who God is and that this house is a special place where God's presence can dwell, yet it does not contain all of God. Okay, now verse 28, yet... Have, yet have regard to the prayer of your servant and to his plea, O Lord my God, listening to the cry and to the prayer that your servant prays before you this day, that your eyes may be open night and day toward this house, the place of which you have said, my name shall be there. See, look at that. He's saying, God, keep your eyes on this place. But remember, God, you said my, what? My name shall be, there. you said that. So he's not like dictating to God what God ought to be doing. He's reminding God what God said He would do. You see that? Does that help you understand <coughs> the importance of, of letting God lead your prayer? You're lining up with God's, God's will? Okay? That you may listen to the prayer that your servant offers toward this place and listen to the plea of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray toward this place. So Solomon asked God to incline his ear towards the king and the people when they prayed toward the temple. <laughs> and for this reason, by the way, very interesting, for this reason, many observant Jews still pray facing the direction of the site of the temple in Jerusalem. So they're still holding on to that promise. Okay? Uh, but they've rejected the one who came to fulfill the promise, the ultimate fulfillment, right? Verse 30, latter part of the verse, and listen in heaven, and, uh, in heaven your dwelling place, and when you hear, forgive. He knew that the most important thing that Israel would need going forward, and by the way, the most important thing that you need while you live out the rest of your life as a believer is to be reminded that you've already been forgiven. All sin, all your sins, all the ones you're going to commit this week, next week, the week after, until you die, all the sins have been forgiven. Do you believe that? That's how you know you have victory in Christ. It's not your victory. You didn't do nothing. You're not the conqueror. The Bible says you're more than a conqueror. You're the one. Jesus, Jesus got in the, in, the, in the ring, fought the fight, and won the battle. And it gives you the blessing, all the blessings of that victory. And one of the blessings is all of your sins are forgiven. Past, present, future. Well, back then, they're praying, Lord, would you please forgive in the future? Because see, they don't have that promise that we have. 
But I know a lot of Christians who don't understand that promise, and they don't think that's true. They think that with sins I commit in the future, i got to go back and do the whole thing over again, get saved again. That just, that just makes God to be a man. God doesn't have the power to save eternally? Are you kidding me? So, very interesting there. And then he goes into it. Look at this, verse 31. If a man sins against his neighbor and is made to take an oath and comes and swears his oath before your altar in the house. So the temple grounds were, were used as a place to verify and authorize oaths. And when a dispute came down to one word against another, Solomon asked that the temple would be a place to properly swear by it. Then here in heaven and act and judge uh, your servants, condemning the guilty by bringing his conduct on his own head and vindicating the righteous by rewarding him according to his righteousness. By the way, in the end, what all the politicians, all the celebrity, all the wealthy, all the poor who hate God, who despise, who've made lies about God, whatever, uh, in the end, it's all going to come down on their head. They don't see that happening. They laugh when you say that. And you don't say it to try to get after them. You say it because you're sorry for them. You hope they'll, 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 they'll surrender, right? Uh, so what's, what's he... Okay, look at this. Verse 32. Then hear in heaven and act and judge your servants, condemning the guilty by bringing his conduct on his own head and vindicating the righteous by rewarding him according to his righteousness. So he deals with these different things. These different intercessions are, are focused on certain things. Here's the first one. Doubt. Doubt. Write it down. If a man was accused of a crime but there was no evidence against him, only God could rightly judge. Okay? So Solomon asked, the God, asked uh, God who can see what man can't. Who knows the hidden heart of a man? And he's asking God to enforce from heaven the oaths made at the temple. Okay? Now, uh, this leads us to believe that Solomon actually believed in a superstitious idea that God would, in fact, uh, uh, perform that at the temple only. And that's not true. God can see everything everywhere, and he can act no matter where he's at, right? That would be at the temple. Uh, there's an old Puritan commentator, though, John Trapp. Listen to this. I thought this was funny. He could not resist mentioning a fulfillment of this principle in his own day. Here's what he wrote. Okay, he was a writer, like in the newspaper, and he's a Puritan. He said, Anne Avery's, who, forswearing herself in 1575, February 11, at a shop of Wood Street in London, praying God she might sink where she stood if she had not paid for the wares she took, fell down presently speechless and with horrible stink died. <laughs> so God kept his promise. You know, if you're going to swear by the Lord, then you're going to die by the Lord. Uh, Verse 33, when your people Israel are defeated before the enemy because they have sinned against you. Uh, many times in their history, Israel suffered defeat and could only cry out to God. It was even worse when the defeat was because they had sinned. Look at verse 33, the latter part. And if they turn again to you and acknowledge your name and pray and plead with you in this house, then hear in heaven and forgive the sins of your people Israel and, and bring them again to the land that you gave to their fathers. So what's the second thing? The first part of prayer that Solomon prayed was doubt. The second part is defeat. Defeat. If the nation was defeated in battle, only God could bring them home. That's what Solomon's basically saying. He asked God uh, to hear the prayers of a defeated, humble, penitent Israel. And Lord, return and forgive them of their sins and become their God again. Verse 35, we move into another one. When heaven is shut up and there is no rain because they have sinned against you, if they pray toward this place and acknowledge your name and turn from their sin when you afflict them, then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your servants, your people Israel, when you teach them the good way in which they should walk and grant rain upon your land which you have given to your people as an inheritance. What do you think the third one is? Doubt. And then we see defeat. And now we see drought. These are all... Curses that came upon people <coughs> because of sin. And uh, now it's drought. Only God could send rain to replenish the land that had dried up as a result of a rebellious people. So drought was a constant threat for a very agriculturally based 
culture. Israel was agrarian, and uh, so here you see uh, there's no rain, there was no food. Lord will recognize that it's because of our sins, and would you please uh, forgive us and come back to us. Verse 37, uh, let's keep moving. If there is famine in the land, if there is pestilence or blight or mildew or locust or caterpillar, if there their enemy besieges them in the land at their gates, whatever plague, whatever sickness there is, whatever prayer, whatever plea is made by any man or by all your people Israel. So he's really look, laying it out. He doesn't take it for granted that God would forgive and hear uh, and forgive uh, and re, uh, re, he would bring repentance to Israel. Verse 38, each knowing the affliction of his own heart, and stretching out his hand toward this house, then here in heaven. Now, if a man is willing to truly repent, he recognizes the sin of his own heart. He stops pointing the finger at other people's sins, and he just goes, Lord, I am a sinner. I'm a wretched man. And he cries out, will you then, will you then forgive him? Uh, he says, verse 39, Then here in heaven at your dwelling place, and forgive and act and render to each whose heart you know, according to all his ways, for you, only you, Know the hearts of all the children of mankind, that they may fear you all the days that they live in the land that, that you gave to our fathers. Think about this now. He's dedicating the temple where people bring sacrifice in order to receive covering for their sins. So he's reminding God of why there's a temple, and very humbly. And Lord, you made promises that if we bring sacrifice and we come with a repentant heart, you would forgive. So he keeps reminding. Again, this is a powerful way for you to pray. But look, you can't pray that. It's not just magical words. Okay? It has to be your heart that truly expresses forgiveness. You know, you're, you're, you're expressing repentance before God as you pray this prayer. And this is what Solomon is doing. But what's he talking about here? Destruction. Destruction. When the people sin and experience pestilence, when they sin and drought, you know, when they're smitten by their enemies, when they call upon you, forgive them, Lord. This means when I forgive people, I must forgive them absolutely unconditionally because I don't know their heart, right? Only God sees the heart. You don't have the right, Christian friend. You do not possess the right to hold somebody hostage for the sins they've committed against you. You don't know their heart. You do know the action. Jesus said you can, you can judge people by the fruit. So what that means is if somebody lied to you, they stole from you, you have to forgive them because you don't know their heart. You don't know that they haven't changed. You don't know when they said to you, please forgive me. You don't know their heart, so you have to do it. But that doesn't mean that you forget that in their conduct, it was low character. You don't have to trust them again anytime soon, right? See the difference? So you're not setting yourself up to be abused by somebody who keeps doing it over and over, coming and repenting and then turning around and, and hurting you again and again and again. But you must forgive them because you don't know their heart. Only the Lord knows their heart. We can't play that role. It's not ours to play. Spurgeon said, a great many men think they know the plague of other people's hearts, and there is a great deal of talk in the world about this family and that person and the other. I pray you let go the scandals of the hour alone and think of your own evils. Isn't that good? You're all caught up in their experience in the last hour, what they did last week or whatever. You're not even seeing the mess you've made in the last week. <laughs> And be like, uh, you know, a baby that could talk really well and saying, Johnny over there has a dirty diaper. Look at the mess he's, look, look at that, smell that mess. And you've got a diaper just filled up with poo. <laughs> Here you are looking at some other, somebody else in their mess and you have a mess. You, but, but see, pride and self-centeredness won't let you see it or smell it. That's why you need to be in church. That's why you need to be in fellowship with believers 
and have relationship with them so that you trust them enough that they'll be honest with you when you mess up and you don't see it. And they say, hey, I, I think you got a mess there. I love you. And what you're doing right now doesn't line up with the word that I know you love. I'm asking you to pray and ask God if that's really what he wants you to do. See, that's real friendship. Those are the people we need in our lives. Okay? Verse 41, Likewise, when a foreigner who is not your people, Israel, comes from a far country for your namesake. Uh, in other words, they, they're, they're coming to Israel because they're rejecting their gods from their land. They're intrigued with the God of Israel. They've heard the great stories of this great God. And now they've come and they're God-fearing. Now, they listen, they can't go into... The, they can't have the same covering as Israel. I mean, they're not, this is during the covenant, right? They will later, the Gentiles, right? But yet, God did show evangelism to them. And that's what Solomon is saying. To, Lord, will you continually evangelize the, the, the foreigner? I want you to see this. Uh, the temple was in Israel, right? But it was always intended to be a house of prayer for all nations. Isaiah 56, verse 7. See, God wanted the court. When they built the temple, they built the court of the what? Gentiles. They also had the court of the women. They were not allowed to go any further, any closer. But God did let them get close enough to see that he, he is the only true God. This is what really ticked Jesus off in his day. When he entered the Gentile court, which was set up for the evangelism, for the opportunity for the, the Gentiles to hear about God and, and, and have a semblance of worship before God. And instead of it being a court for the Gentile, the high priest and his cronies turned it into a merchant camp, a marketplace, selling animals at an exorbitant price, making it hard for people to have an animal to bring to the priest for sacrifice. And Jesus chased them out. This is what Solomon's praying for. Lord, don't ever... Will you... you, you, you created this outer court for the Gentile. Lord, would you please allow the foreigner to come and learn of your greatness? They've rejected their God. I just think there's something there that's beautiful, man. Just beautiful. Verse 43, Here in heaven your dwelling place, and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you, in order that the, all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you as do your people Israel, and that they may know that the house that I have built is called by your name. Now, what is that about? It's about denunciation. That's what it is. When people of other nations come to the temple and turn their back on their heathen gods after hearing about the great things you've done, hear their prayers well, Lord. They've denounced. Lord, will you hear them? Will you let them come near? We also are called to be salt and light. We're also called to evangelize that other people might come near to God, that they might see the greatness of God. How will they know the greatness of God if you never display God's greatness in you? If you're not telling people how God saved you miraculously, if you're not sharing the stories of, of Cindy Dampier, what God did, how do we expect people to, to, to see God as a great God? You say, yeah, but they're just going to reject. They're going to laugh. They're going to mock. They're going to ridicule. Most of them will. So you're still called to be salt and light. It doesn't change. It's not like you said, be salt and light if they receive you. If they reject you, then you don't have to be salt and light. No, you're salt and light. It's not something, it's not a behavior. It's, it's a way of life. It's who you are. So, you know, I mean, salt, you put salt on food. I, you can say when you're pouring it out that you're no, 
You used to be salt, now you're pepper. You used to be salt, now you're... No, it's salt. You can call it pepper, but it's going to taste like salt. And it's going to salt the food. That's who you are. So just be who you are. Don't reject it. Don't resist it. Don't give certain people in your life this, this, this picture that you're, you're something that they like, and they never know who you really are. That's called a chameleon Christian. You know the old green chameleons? I think most of them have gotten eaten up by all these modern weird lizards, man. But those old green chameleons, man, and they, you put them on a brown leaf and they turn brown. Remember that? We used to take them when I was a kid and pop them on the, on the little nose and hang them from our ears. Walk around <laughs> hanging them from our ears. Turn them over, flip them over, and just rub their belly with a little stick, you know, just real soft, and they fall asleep. They lay there. <laughs> you have a demented pastor. <laughs> I wasn't killing them, but we were having fun with them. So, but that's, see, don't be a chameleon Christian. Come on. Solomon's praying that the people would make the name of the Lord great, and God, when they do, will you allow the foreigner who hears that you're great, will you allow them to come near? We're wanting to see people know who you are. What, what a great heart Solomon had. Love that. So let me ask you this question. Are you concerned for the lost that you know? What is that, how does that concern play out? What does it look like? When you say, I'm concerned for the people that I know that are lost, okay, what does that look like? How does that concern show up? Is it possible that, well, I pray for them. I'm faithful to pray for them. That's wonderful. That's always the beginning point. Is that the end? No, it's the beginning. Now you have to be salt and light to them. Yeah, I've tried that. They're just not, they don't want to hear it. Well, you look for opportunities, and that's what you pray. Lord, they're unsaved. I'm burdened for them. Would you show me how? Give me an opportunity. Open the door that I might be able to speak again with them. And look for opportunities. Never stop being salt and light. And live your life in, in front of them in such a way that it brings honor and glory to God. It, bring, it raises the greatness of His name. Amen? That's what it's about. God wants us to be concerned for lost people as a church. I'm concerned for lost people. I, I, I just love meeting new people and talking to them, getting to know them, and then letting it play out. And love how God gives opportunity after opportunity to share. Every once in a while, somebody responds. Most of the time, they don't. He just used me to throw a little water down, you know, do a little cultivating, maybe throw a seed. Be happy with that, but don't stop doing it. Verse 44, if your people go out to battle against their enemy by whatever way you shall send them, and they pray to the Lord toward the city that you have chosen and the house that I have built for your name, then hear in heaven their prayer and their plea and maintain their cause. What's that? Deployment. Send us out, Lord. It's a battle cry. If the nation went to battle in obedience to God's instruction, only He could truly fight for them, right? So Lord, You be the one that deploys us into the battle. We want to follow You. Uh, verse 46, if they sin against You, for there is no one who does not sin. Oh, there it is. That's the Old Testament version of a verse that we know well in the New Testament. What is that verse? Anybody want to tell me in the New Testament? For all have sinned and come short to the glory of God. And here it is in the Old Testament. For there is no one who does not sin. Wow. And for that time in history, that was true. Now, Jesus came, showed up, and he never sinned. But they didn't know him, right? So this was a truism when they spoke it. Uh, now, yet if they turn their heart in, in the land to which they have been carried captive and repent and plead with you in the land of their captors, saying, We have sinned and have acted perversely and wickedly. If they repent with all their heart and with all their soul in, their land, in the land of their enemies who carried them captive and prayed to you toward their land, 
which you gave to their fathers, the city that you have chosen, and the house that I have built for your name, then here in heaven, your dwelling place, their, pr their prayer and their plea, and maintain their cause, and forgive your people who have sinned against you, all and all their transgressions that, have, uh, that they have committed against you, and grant them compassion in the sight of those who carried them captive, that they might have compassion on them. For they are your people and your heritage, which you brought up out of Egypt from the midst of the iron furnace. You understand his prayer when he's reminding God of these things. He's not coming up with his own thoughts, his own ideas about what God, he wants God to do. He's saying, God, no, I'm just telling you what you said. This is how, in the past, how you've acted. I'm asking you to act the same with this people. If they sin, would you do the same? Okay? See the difference? It's not about you leading the prayer. It's about you lining up with God's prayer. Verse 52, let your eyes be open to the plea of your servant and to the plea of your people, Israel, giving ear to them whenever they call to you. For you separated them from among all the peoples of the earth to be your heritage, as you declared through Moses your servant when you brought our fathers out of Egypt, O Lord God. So Solomon asked God to hear Israel's prayer from captivity in a foreign land. That's very interesting. And boy, did they all go in captivity one day. And they did. And then God delivered them out of captivity, and they went back and they started worshiping God again. He fulfilled. He did everything he said he would do. And then you come into verse 57, and it's the benediction, the blessing. It's beautiful. Uh, Solomon began this, this prayer standing, but he finishes the prayer on his knees. I just love that. I love that. Ezra prayed on his knees. The psalmist called us to kneel. Daniel prayed on his knees. People came to Jesus kneeling. Stephen prayed on his knees. Peter prayed on his knees. Jesus prayed on his knees. <clears throat> Most importantly, Jesus prayed on his knees. That doesn't mean we should only pray on our knees, but there's enough scripture passages where they prayed on their knees that it ought to be something that from time to time we do. You don't have to pray on your knees any more than you have to close your eyes. I've traveled around the globe to India and Christians there, they don't close their eyes when they pray. Pastors say, let's pray. And their eyes are open. They're just praying. And I mean, now some close their eyes, others don't. It's really odd when you come from America. It looks so different from us, you know. But uh, these, are, these are things that we can take into prayer. And God was faithful. Yet all the way through this, Solomon has, has reminded God of the promise, but he's also recognized the condition to the promise. If the people turn, if they repent, if they, will you? Well, of course God will. Now, in our day, you're not under curses. Jesus has paid the, for the, cur the curse. But Jesus, you know, here's a statement that we make oftentimes, and I've been guilty of it as well. And the more I think about it, the more I realize I'm just trying to make people in the world who don't know God like me better when I say this. And that, I, that's not good. That's, that's a bad thing. They need to get the real picture of God. How many of you have ever said, God hates the sin, but he loves the sinner? Right? He hates the sin, but he loves the sinner. So that's what the world hears us say. Well, who's going to hell? Sin? No. The sinner. When we say he hates the sin but loves the sinner, it gives the impression that God loves me even though I'm a sinner. Um, but in the end, if you don't know Jesus personally by faith and the work of Christ on the cross, you're going to hell. So even that statement, we got to be careful how we, 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 we believe things that don't line up with Scripture. Make sense? So what does that do when I come to an understanding now, a revelation that while God loves sinners, He died for all, but one day sinners, not sin, sinners are going to hell. Well, that puts it back in a right frame of mind, so now it compels me to what? Be salt and light. Share with people who don't know Jesus. You say, well, if God already knows He's chosen who's going to be there, um, or, or their name's already written in the book of life, which I believe the Bible teaches that, that, that from the foundation of the world, God knew who would be saved and who wouldn't. So why, why do we have to worry about evangelizing? 
because you don't know who they are. And his calling comes through, Jesus said, go into the world, preach the gospel. So who do you think you are not to sit back on the sidelines and say, well, you know, God's already made a decision. I'm like, no, no, you're called by Christ. You're compelled. You're commanded. Go into the world. Reach lost people for Jesus by sharing the good news, letting God save them. Amen? All right. Um, we're going to stop there. We're going to stop there. There's just a little bit left. We'll pick up the last of it next week and then go into chapter 9. And uh, I love chapter 9. It's going to be a lot of fun. So let's just do that. Let's, uh, we'll pick it up next week.